0: The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Eliza Pressman, and today I am just so beyond honored to have Professor Alan Sproff back. He is the leading developmental theorist of this whole generation, and his work on helping us understand how we come to be who we are is so seminal. And since there are so many misconceptions about attachment theory and about the concept of a secure attachment relationship, and we hear about it so often as being so instrumental in helping raise good humans, I thought it was important to hear about it straight from Professor Strofe, including some of the myths and mysteries surrounding this incredibly important concept. Professor Stroff is at the University of Minnesota's Institute of Child Development, and he conducted the longest running study of human psychological development ever, establishing the reasons why we each behave as we do and see the world as we do. His groundbreaking theoretical and empirical contributions to the fields of developmental psychology and developmental psychopathology have been reported in the academic world in hundreds of papers and journals. What I am so excited about is that he is also passionate about making sure that this information gets direct to parents and caregivers so that we don't mistake some of the noise with really beautiful science. If you enjoy this episode, don't forget to write a review. And of course, if you have not already, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts to my premium content, it's totally different. It's exclusive to Apple Podcasts. It's 299 a month. So for less than a latte, you get a weekly bite-sized separate episode that touches on practical applications of parenting research. This season was all about discipline, foundations and discipline, and next season is all about resilience. And of course, you can always reach me through DM on my Instagram at Raising Good Humans podcast. There are so many misconceptions about attachment, and I really can't think of anyone better to help unpack that. So I wanted to ask you, what are the major misconceptions that you've come across over the years? about attachment? And I guess we could start with defining attachment.
1: Good place to start because that's the one misconception is thinking of attachment the way we used to think about traits. So it's something you could have too much or too little of, individual characteristics that are on dimensions. But the first misconception or Failure to properly conceive is that attachment is a relationship concept. It's a descriptor of a relationship. So when we say an infant is securely attached, that's actually shorthand for saying this infant has a secure relationship with this partner. Perhaps the best synonym for secure is confident. The infant is confident in the responsiveness of this partner. That's what a secure attachment means. There are other parts of the definition. Attachment is often referred to as an emotional bond, and it is indeed that. It's an emotional connection between the infant and the caregiver. And, of course, it's a two-way connection. Caregivers are attached to infants also. But it's not entirely symmetrical because the infant is dependent upon the caregiver for care. The main ingredient in secure attachment is caregiver responsiveness to the infant. And one of the, the difficulties that thinking of attachment as a relationship solves is the question of what's the relationship between attachment and temperament? Is temp, are, are attachment difference, differences simply temperament differences? People often ask, what about temperament? Aren't these differences in attachment just differences in temperament? And once you understand attachment as a relationship, you can see where that cannot be true. Temperament's a characteristic of an individual. And the same infant could be securely attached to one parent and anxiously attached to the other. And therefore, it can't be simply reducible to temperament. Temperament's a very useful concept. It's a useful way of describing individual dimensions of behavior. But once you take those into account, you can still see that being securely attached is independent of that. So there are babies, for example, who are slow to warm up. They're easily over-aroused, perhaps. Well, being responsive to that baby means making sure your ministrations are gentle and well-timed and that you have smooth transitions, gradual transitions to other activities. So being responsive to a baby with a temperament that makes them easy to arouse still produces confidence in that baby. And likewise, what if you have a baby that's slow to arouse? You have to really pump them up to get them going. Well, that's what sensitive care with that baby would be. And if you do what that baby needs, he'll be confident in your responsiveness. Excuse me for using he and her sometimes. We'll get to that one about our attachments just with mothers. That'll be one that we get to in a minute. That's the basic idea between about the importance of attachment as a relationship. It helps you not slip into thinking that it's immutable. Since it's a quality of the relationship, the relationship can change. And therefore, so can the infant's security. If a caregiver in the first year of life is not responsive to the infant, They may well be anxious in their attachment, but if circumstances change, supports increase for that caregiver, they're in a better place, they become more responsive, that infant, when you see them six months later, may be secure in their attachment. So clearly, again, it's not just a matter of some inborn characteristic of the baby. It's a developmental outcome of a relationship process. That's what makes it tremendously important in clinical work, of course. Because again, in clinical work, you're involved in a relationship process. And having this idea of how attachment forms and it's that it's a relationship concept has many ramifications.
0: Well, and also when you say that, what a breath of relief mm. for any parent who or caregiver who's just feeling like I blew it. Because I hear that so often. Yeah. And it's so heartbreaking, like yeah. the idea that it you mess up works. and you can't, right, it can't be repaired. So to hear you say that when so often people parade themselves for me, quote unquote messing up those early relational experiences or interactions yeah. Yeah. because of whatever their circumstances were, whatever they were able to bring bring out, I think it's very heartening to hear that without diminishing the importance of if you are coming at this from the beginning.
1: Of course. How important that is. That's actually, uh, I have four of these these confusions or misinterpretation. Number four, the main one is going to be early attachment is not destiny, but we'll come back to that. The second confusion and this one uh, more confuses academics every so often. Oh, Almost every year, there'll be an article in a major journal, a critique of attachment theory as a Western European theory that only applies to Western industrialized cultures and Caucasian cultures and so forth. And that article, you know, there's an article like that quite frequently. And that's a huge misinterpretation. And it, what it fails to distinguish is attachment concepts from particular ways of measuring attachment. And it also fails to distinguish attachment as this confidence in the availability of care with particular child-rearing structure that a culture may use. There are many lines of argument here as to why that is not a valid criticism. But I'll begin with the fact that attachment theory has its origins in Mary Ainsworth's research in rural Uganda, which was hardly a Western industrialized population she studied. These were traditional families that carried their infants, the infant was carried in a sling as the mother worked in the fields, and so forth. And her original insights about what secure attachment is. Came from that study and grew from there. And what she found was, it was the sensitivity of care. She was very surprised because she thought, well, in this culture, all the babies are nursed and they're carried, they'll all be secure. Well, they weren't. And of course, not all the parents were being well supported socially either. Some of the parents had abusive husbands. Some of the parents had their own history of problems and so forth. Anyway, she found variation. And the variation wasn't in whether they were nursed or not because they were all nursed. The variation was in the sensitivity and responsiveness of the caregiver to the signals of the baby. So that was the beginning of of attachment research. And then of course, I mean, the ball was picked up, and many of the early studies were done here in the U.S. and in countries. And that's true. But in the last three decades or so, attachment relationships have been studied in mountain villages in Mexico, street children in Bogota, every every continent. And the same thing is found. If parents are sensitively responsive to infants in the first year of life, the infant will have a secure attachment. Now, there are some cultures where the strange situation, which is the measure we use mainly here, is not very appropriate. Because in some cultures, and this first came up in a trad- traditional Japanese family study, because in those families, this was back a ways when There were a lot of traditional Japanese families. Infants were never left by their caregiver ever. They slept with the mother. They were always with the mother. I think the mothers went on their job interviews with them. Being a little facetious there. But the point was, (laughs) and my, my Japanese colleagues assure me this was the case. Well, you bring them into the laboratory and have their mother leave them in a strange environment. They are flipped out. Of course, and they don't get settled. Of course, this was traumatic for them. But that doesn't mean attachment theory didn't work because in fact, home observations of those babies show the same kind of variations. And then subsequently studies with more, with non-traditional Japanese families using the strange situation, it works the same as in US. So there, there are lots of reasons why this is not a culture-bound theory. Part of that's probably a hangover from uh, traditional psychoanalytic theory, which was culture-bound. Freud didn't take a lot of account into cultural variation. Eric Erickson did, of course, and other people have since, but attachment theory very much always has been interested in culture because we want to know more than how does the secure attachment form with the primary caregiver we want to know all about the socialization development of children and yes there are cultures where very early like in the second third year of life even older children are caring for babies and there are cultures in which many people in the community care for babies but there's no culture in which babies are not raised by their mother in the early months of life none and so that the the Cultural studies of attachment and chauri are quite interesting and important. Don't get me wrong. I'm not criticizing them. But it's not a valid criticism of the theory of sensitive care promotes secure attachment. That's culturally general. It's also culturally general that all babies become attached to those who care for them. There, There are no exceptions to that. The only exceptions, like the children raised in institutions who have no consistent caregiver Yes. They're not going to form an attachment if they don't have somebody.
0: They are less likely to thrive.
1: That experiment, you know, the Bucharest experiment, was very important where they did random assignment and some babies went into foster care and some stayed in the institution. And there was no question about this, the benefit of being raised by consistent caregivers.
0: And now a word from my sponsor. You all know how much I care about supporting parents through evidence based tools. And in fact, the foundation of my work is working with parents directly and having support for parents through healthcare systems, running mom groups and parent groups. It's so incredible what is possible. And I feel particularly strong about running those parent groups and making sure that people have access no matter where they are to parent groups, because that can be so life-changing. Cooper is a new company that offers incredible parenting groups that are live and virtual for your convenience. I know they're expert leaders. I know who's written their curriculum. And I know that groups can be such a wonderful way to feel seen and connected and supported. Visit them at yourcooper.com That's Y-O-U-R, Cooper.com, and use code HUMANS at checkout for a special 40% off of a Cooper membership. Go for it because you need support, and this is a scalable way to get it. When research is taken out of context and used against parents in like popular culture parenting stuff, it's so dangerous. And one of the things I think happened with that is that out of context... The lack of sensitivity of care in an institution was then compared to a parent who's taking a shower while their kid is crying and, you know, or they're trying to figure out procedural stuff for sleeping and feeding, et cetera. I think it's quite upsetting that sometimes when you pull research out of context, it can get translated to parents in a way that puts them into a full-blown
1: panic. That's a really good point. This system is relatively robust. If I were to say what surprised me in our study, which was a longitudinal study of families in poverty, so not surprising, lots of them were struggling. Poverty is hard on families and children, without doubt. But the main thing that surprised me was how many of the babies came out to be securely attached, Mm. even in that context. Mm. You don't have to be perfect. I think that that's probably one of the best quotes from Eric Erickson, which is children don't become neurotic from frustration, but from lack of meaning in the frustration. Mm. Ooh, gee. I'm gonna remember that because I've I've forgotten about that one till right now. That's just yeah. Ainsworth said, you, you know, one thing would be good for everybody to read, and they're reprinted in uh, A couple of books now, but Ainsworth's Sensitivity Scales, she has long descriptions of what does it mean to be sensitive and responsive. And does it mean that you jump up and pick up the little king every time there's a peep? No, of course not. Sometimes you have something else that really is priority. The older sibling is about to run into the street. The baby can cry for a minute. Yeah. And it's the reliability of care. Obviously, if it's completely haphazard, hit or miss, and chaotic, that isn't going to work out. And if it's consistently emotionally rejecting, like when the child wants to be held, you don't want to hold them. You're know, you you're not comfortable giving physical contact. That doesn't work out so well. But most parents can do this if they have adequate support and adequate space. I think we should move on to number three. Yes. Kind of ties in with what we've been talking about. And that's this idea of, can you only be attached to your biological mother? I can't find that written anywhere in Bowlby. I don't know where that idea ever came from as a criticism that attachment theory says you have to be, your mother has to be the primary caregiver. I mean, mothers have a number of advantages. They've carried this baby. They already have a kind of investment that it's harder for fathers to have. They can nurse. They have a lot of advantages. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with mother being the primary caregiver. That's commonly the way it is. But we certainly studied cases where the primary caregiver was a, a man and we studied cases where it was a grandparent. And those can be secure also. And it is common for babies to be attached to more than one person. What Bowlby said specifically is that infants are biased, and by biased he meant from our evolutionary history, from our biology. We are biased to form a small hierarchy of attachment relationships. That's a very simple sentence, but it says a ton. It says you can't be attached to dozens of different people equally as a baby. That's too complex for organizing your behavior. And it actually is not a bad rule for adults to <laughs> understand you, you know, there's limits. Yeah. Thought hierarchy was important for two reasons. By heart, hierarchy means there will tend to be a primary. Even though you're attached to multiple people. And somebody actually did a study where they put a baby in the center of the room and frightened them with mom in one corner and dad in the other. And the vast majority went right to mom. But now remove mom, put baby in the center of the room and frighten the baby like a rocket to dad. The reason Bobby thought that this made sense was since this system developed in humans when we were in a hunter-gatherer phase of our existence as we moved around, and you can well see this in non-human primates. I mean, the little monkeys are, they're always on their mother's back, baby monkeys, when the troop is moving. They're not on somebody else's back. Even though they go to others and at other times, when the troop is moving, they're on their mother's back. Well, humans aren't as good clingers as as other primates. But it has to be that as soon as the baby is mobile, they're motivated whenever a threat arrives to immediately go to their source of safety. And you can't be debating. You can't say, well, mom's over there, but there's this bush I'd have to go around. Dad's over you. You're prey by then. So when a threat arises, you're, you're, you're moving along in your little group. There's a threat. You immediately, like a rocket, go to this, this source. You have to have that. You have to be zoned in on that. It's like you know radar. You, know, you always know where that is. Lots of observational studies show that when infants are playing, they constantly keep the mother in the center of their play and range around. And always know where she is. And if mother weren't there, that would be true for father. So that's one reason you need this organized with a primary. But you need to be able to attach to others because what if your primary caregiver dies? Would you just then die? Well, yes, you would have if you can't attach to another. But you can. But you can. And you often are is you, you often know who to go to next. It's very important to understand that. And it's important for all members of the support system to embrace this, I think. As, as a father, I accept it being number two. It's not a bad place. And the same with our, our granddaughters now. There's a kind of attachment they have with my wife that's different from what they have with me. I have no doubt they're both attached to me. We're real strong. And uh, it's a wonderful role to be in. So as being a father, there's a lot of things people have written about how having different caregivers with different styles is maybe good for a child. You know, one, one parent can be better at dealing with some things and another with other things. We all have our strengths and vulnerabilities. So uh, a hierarchy is not, is not a bad thing. The fourth one, and, and this is one that uh, comes up a lot and primarily and when i'm giving talks i start out with what we found about how important attachment is and, and that is true there's i i don't think there's anything named that's more important than the quality of the early relationship the child experiences but the question always comes up isn't this a pessimistic theory because if you're anxiously attached as a baby <laughs> you know, you're going to have a life of misery. It doesn't work that way at all. And I mean, Bowlby put it in terms of developmental pathways and anxious attachment, secure attachment, different patterns of of those initiate pathways. But like any pathway you're on, they branch and they're always opportunities for correction and change. And that applies both ways. Secure attachment is not a guarantee of being problem-free. Cases in our study of children that were securely attached and developed beautifully who uh, tragedy it didn't work out well. It's just probabilistic that if you have a secure attachment infancy, you start out on a good path. It's more likely, probabilistically, you have advantages that likely will stay with you, and if. If you don't, you have vulnerabilities that likely will stay with you. One reason I wrote that recent book, A Compelling Idea, and did it in such a personal way was exactly because of this. I couldn't reveal so much about individual cases in our study where the kids had problems and then got better because it would be too hard to conceal um, their identities in my case, especially as uh, I got older, I'm not embarrassed that I had a difficult childhood. And I wanted to say, I, I can't know whether I was secure or anxiously attached, although I think I was anxiously attached, but I can't tell because I wasn't there. But I do know, you know, I could, I can recall difficulties of early childhood that are often related to anxious attachment.
0: You know, make a long story short, I've
1: had a meaningful life. I have no complaints about life. I'm happy to be who I am. flaws and all. And uh, we had lots of kids in our study that, you know, they're remarkable human beings, even though they were anxiously attached to them. So it is not destiny. And we did make it a point to study change routinely. And we found things like I already mentioned that from 12 to 18 months, you can go from anxious to secure attachment if the stress in your family goes down. And if you were anxiously attached at 12 and 18 months, you can be relatively problem free by the time you enter school. If the social support system available to that family has improved dramatically, relationships among the adults stabilized, the mother isn't living with the abusive man anymore. She's now with a man who's pretty solid. The rest of the family has rallied around Guess what? The kid's doing fine. You have to take a longer range view and you have to look at each life as a trajectory. We all have ups and downs. It's still the case that uh, I would wish for every child secure early beginning. And I would wish for our society that we do more to make that happen more often than is currently the case.
0: Anything we can do to address making that attachment relationship have a better shot early on that we actually have control over. So, of course, there's uh, a policy.
1: Yeah, that we, that we actually have control over. It. That's the yeah. Most of the things I think of are pretty systemic. Obviously, people like you and uh, many others I know who work directly with families and children. I don't know if you've ever interviewed Mary Dozier. would love to. You should.
0: There are things we can do about the system on an individual level, but what are the things that we can do on an individual level for our own system, our family system?
1: Well, one of the things I've always thought, this is why I like these intervention programs that work with the parents, because I've always thought that the first job, okay, attachment theory says the caregiver needs to be responsive and supportive of the infant. The family's job is to be responsive and supportive of the caregiver. Our job is to be responsive and supportive of the family. That's what real family values would be. Would be. So I like intervention programs. More broadly, we developed one here that actually wound up being um, used pretty well in Germany. There's another person you could interview sometime. His name is Gerhard Seuss, but he did this program in in Germany, and the way this worked was it, it was multi-level. Yes, an individual person reviewed videotapes with the mother you know about the baby. what's the baby signaling you know that stuff. There's a next level where one mother in the program and her visitor went to the house of another member in the program and her visit with her visitor. And they fostered that connection between those two mothers. The next level was they had group meetings. The next thing they did, they also trained people on how to navigate the system, how to get bus passes, how to get the stuff, to make your life manageable. I think that's, that's what I would mean by supporting the family. You got it. The families we work with usually were just a mother and a child. And certainly, in our intervention project, that's the way it was. They were all single mothers and in our poverty study, almost by definition, if you get a group of people that are living in poverty you'll find a lot of single mothers there and a lot of children so that's that's where the idea of they need some you know they need what isn't there what we evolved to be live in these small group communities where everybody supported everybody.
0: And we don't have
1: that. We don't have that.
0: So this was like mothers supporting mothers. So there was social support. And then there was also support to work a very complicated system that should be able to provide things that it's just hard to figure out how to even get to it.
1: Oh, man. And and has that gotten even worse? (laughs) I mean, I've I've tried to help some people. How do you get on disability? Well, boy, it isn't easy these days. (laughs) And this No, program, it's not and that program.
0: as one thinks about their experience being parented and their attachment relationship and attachment relationships. If they start to feel like, huh, I don't think I had the confidence in the care that I received or the stability in that relationship. Does that destine them to not understand how to create and cultivate that relationship I
1: certainly don't think so. <laughs> I know.
0: I just I, I phrase that funny,
1: but well, no. I I get the point. I would just say for someone like me, it took me a long time to be able to be close to people, and I also got a lot of benefit from therapy. But I, I'm not saying therapy is is essential. It's not. It's not necessary. There are other ways, but I think it has to be through relationships. So for me. I first came to understand, understand that it was difficult for me. And then I came to understand that it could get better if I worked on it. If I, I mean, I, I lucked out in that. I had both a therapist and I have a wife who uh, is able to emotionally connect. That's what's the main criterion for therapists and spouses. I think it gets better over time. And, uh, that's the whole point of living anyway, is to uh, learn how to be closer to people you care about. That's what we do in life. And that's open to anybody. I and mean, it was open to me. And I could, I could bring in a lot of people to testify about how unable I was to do that historically. <laughs> but now I'm, I'm close to all of our children. I'm close to the grandchildren. I'm close to my wife. I have close friends. And it doesn't mean that uh, my history got erased or my problems are gone. I would imagine that I'm more, the way I view it is, I, I would be more easily threatened by any hints of abandonment or something. And, you know, there's there's some people that would be more confident that despite slings and arrows, it'll work out, you know. With me, I'd be, you know, more doubtful, but, by now I've learned, well, you go, you keep going anyway. And then if you do, if it's what you want, if you want closeness with others, I think you can have it. I think that's true for anyone. It's why we do this work is to share it. I mean, that's that was the whole point of logging 50 years at the university was to have this information.
0: Thank you.